This week we continue our series of sermons through the book of Revelation here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church. We just preach through whole books of the Bible uh, at a time, uh, and we start at the book of Revelation uh, in January of this year. So we are now up to uh, Revelation chapter 2. I will read verses 1 through 7. You can find that uh, in your bulletin if you want to make notes. Hear the word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you And remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have the words of life, and we need to hear from you this day. We pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit this morning uh, to illuminate our minds, even as your Holy Spirit inspired the words of Scripture. I pray that you would enable us to receive um, what it is that you would have us know this day. And, Lord, may we be not just hearers of the word, but also doers. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the Apostle John, he's the last of the 12 original disciples to be alive. He's living on the Isle of Patmos. He's a prisoner there because of his work as a preacher. He's an old man. Maybe he's 90 years old. And on Sunday... While he was worshiping in the Spirit, he hears a voice behind him and he turns and he sees Jesus. Not Jesus like he knew him during his earthly days, but Jesus in his full-blown, glorified, heavenly body. And John is scared to death and he falls down as if he's dead there at the feet of Jesus. Jesus puts his right hand on John and he tells him to not be afraid And he tells him this. He says, write the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And the book of Revelation, its whole entire sum from beginning to end, was written in response to that command from Jesus. Jesus is seen there in the midst of seven golden lampstands, which are the churches. And then Jesus delivers seven brief messages, seven little letters, one to each of the seven churches. And this morning's message is a message to the church at Ephesus, 
which was John's home church before he was exiled to to Patmos. The church in Ephesus had been planted by the Apostle Paul on his third missionary journey. Paul actually spent three years in that church. Uh, uh, Timothy, the protege of Paul, was the head of the church in Ephesus for a while. It was a good church. When Paul writes uh, to the church... uh, uh, around the year 61 AD, he says to the church, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all of the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all of my prayers. Now 30 years later, John is sending this message, this message of Jesus to them. At this point, they're a mature church. They're a settled church. Let's call them a second-generation church. Some of the founding fathers and mothers might still be there in the church, but another generation and a half has been raised up inside of this church, and it's still a pretty good church. Last Sunday, we received eight new members. We baptized two individuals. Marcus is a young man. He's 20 years old, and he wore a Jesus Saves t-shirt to be baptized in. And Louisa, beautiful doll, two years old, she was presented by her parents for baptism. It doesn't matter how good a church is in one generation if we're not capturing the next generation. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the source of this perpetual renewal of the church? I think that's what we need to be thinking about today. How is it that the church remains ever young and ever growing? The church at Ephesus was a good church. And Jesus sends his message to that church around the year 90 AD. And he has good things to say about it. He says, I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. He says, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. Patient endurance is going to be one of the major themes in the book of Revelation. This book was given to the church during a time of terrible persecution. It was given them to have an encouragement to endure what was going on. They were enduring sometimes to the point of death. Scholars tell us that one out of seven Christians in the first century were martyred for this faith. This letter was written to these people. Part of what makes us patient in times of tribulation, part of what makes us patient in facing tough times is that we know the outcome. We know that Christ wins the victory. We know that we who are in Christ will be more than conquerors, and that allows us to keep pressing on. That encourages our hearts. Jesus says to the church at Ephesus that they are patiently enduring. How wonderful to know that Jesus is aware of what's going on in our lives. He knows our works. He knows our toils. He knows what we've done on behalf of the gospel. He knows the troubles that we bear and the patience that we've displayed in suffering for righteousness' sake. Jesus knows. And he says this to the church. The Bible says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Some of you, this past week, have been working really hard. 
You've been working in the vineyard of the master. Some of you have been busy doing good for the sake of the kingdom of God. And the promise to you is is that you will reap a harvest for your labors. Your work will not be in vain. We do not see a harvest every day. We do not see a harvest every Sunday. But we do not become weary in doing good because we know that a harvest will come. Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for their hard work and for their endurance, and he commends them for their patient patient suffering under persecution. The third thing that Jesus commends them for is for having tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not. And he commends them for hating the work of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus also hates. What Jesus is talking about here is about doctrinal truth. He's talking about knowing the truth and teaching the truth and defending the truth. Some things are true and some things are false and the church has to recognize this. As Christians, we cannot be indifferent toward truth. We live in a post-truth culture. We have powerful public figures who lie Constantly. Our culture says, whatever you think is true is true, or whatever you want to be true is true. Well, that's a lie. And lying, according to Jesus, is the native language of the devil, and we as Christians should have nothing to do with the devil, and we should have nothing to do with his minions either. We should not listen to the devil and not listen to his minions. We should not buy from the devil and his minions. We should not support or be associated with the devil and his minions in any way. The Bible says the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Let's be clear. The church of Jesus Christ cannot make deals with liars. Our calling as Christians is to speak the truth and to speak it in love. We are called to speak the truth habitually. We should speak the truth always so that it is simply normal. We don't need to utter an oath to prove to people that we're speaking the truth because every time we open our mouths, everything that we say comes out of our mouth should be true. And that means as Christians, we do not cheat on any test that we take in school, even if the world says to us, well, you know, everyone's doing it. That means we do not pad or inflate our resumes to impress people, even if the world says, well, you know, everyone's doing that. That means we do not fudge the numbers on our tax forms. Even if the world says everyone does that. We, the church, are a separated people. We are not of the world. We are not like the world. We are a holy people. Our God is a God of truth. And that means we need to speak the truth every time. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each One of you speak the truth with his neighbor. That's a command of scripture to the church. Jesus commends 
the Ephesians because they are discerning when it comes to evaluating the preaching of self-appointed apostles and prophets. The world is full of self-appointed apostles and prophets. Anyone can call themselves a bishop or an apostle or a prophet. How do we evaluate them? On matters of doctrine? On matters that apply to God and to faith and salvation? The way we evaluate them is we check them against what the Bible says. The Bible is our only standard. Jesus mentions the Nicolaitans, and he says that he hates their works. Yes, Jesus hates certain things. And he commends the church at Ephesus for also hating the work of the Nicolaitans. Now here's the tricky part. The Nicolaitans called themselves Christians. Okay? Jesus and the church at Ephesus hate the work of the Nicolaitans, but the Nicolaitans, they're not pagans. These aren't people who say that they worship some other god. These are people who claim to be Christians. Apparently, uh, these people took the freedom that we have in Christ to be a license for sex outside of the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman. Okay, the Nicolaitans were kind of free love Christians. There have been other examples of this kind of thing in history, by the way. When I was at Princeton, I wrote an article about the Oneida community in upstate New York in the 19th century. Okay, this is a community that was started by John Humphrey Noyes, who had been converted under the preaching of Charles Finney, and he went on to study at Yale Theological Seminary, and he became fascinated uh, <clears throat> by setting the date for setting a date for the second coming of Jesus. He wrote, My heart was fixed on the millennium, and I resolved to live and to die for it. And Noise became convinced that Jesus had already returned, secretly, of course, and that he, Mr. Noise, was living in the millennium, and that the strictures of God's law had entirely passed away. So the United Community was part of a larger movement that's called perfectionism, which taught that it is possible to be entirely sin-free in this life, not just in heaven. And, the, and in the United Community, everyone was married to everyone else, which meant that everyone could have sex with everyone else. Though after a while, the older men began to complain because the younger women were only interested in the younger men. Go figure. Okay, trouble in paradise already. My point is this. Not everyone who calls himself a Christian is a Christian. And part of the work of the church in every generation is to be discerning about what self-appointed apostles are preaching. Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for not being taken in by the false teachers who had come into their midst claiming to be teaching some kind of new and improved version of Christianity. We want to preach the same old thing over and over again. We cannot improve upon what Jesus and the apostles taught. So there are many ways in which the church at Ephesus was commendable. 
They worked hard in doing good. They were patient uh, with the persecution that they were suffering. They held to pure doctrine taught by the apostles. They rejected the novelties of self-appointed teachers. These are all very admirable accomplishments, but Jesus is not satisfied. In fact, he rebukes them. He says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. If we want to see our church renewed generation after generation, we cannot abandon the love that we had at first. There are churches that might be correct on doctrine. There are churches that might be working really hard doing their good works. But if they've lost their love for Christ, they will attract no one to Christ. If we want to see our church renewed generation after generation, we cannot abandon the love that we had at first. Those of you who've been married a long time, you can remember what it was like when you first fell in love. In just a few weeks on the Saturday after Valentine's Day, we will have our Valentine's banquet uh, here. It's a time to celebrate married love. The Bible tells us that human marriage between one man and one woman is given as an earthly image of Christ's union, his holy union with the church. It is good to be in love. It is good to be faithfully married because it gives us a kind of tangible mm, parable of the passion that Christ has for his church. And that all-consuming bounded, faithful relationship that we are to have with Christ. But the reality is, is that even in good marriages, the early passion has a way of weakening. Even if we're faithful to our spouse, even if we're responsible in our family lives, even if we're doing all of the good works that go into making a Christian marriage and a Christian family, the reality is that sometimes our love grows cold. We're going to have this Valentine's banquet, not just for fun. I mean, it will be fun, but we're having it to fan the flames of passionate love in Christian marriages. That's why we do it. One of the things that happens at those banquets is that some of the husbands, the brave ones, go to the microphone and they sing love songs to their wives which is corny, and it's hilarious, but it's also really wonderful. Good marriages are no accident because all of the people that get married are imperfect because all of the people who get married are sinners. A good marriage only happens when people continue to work on it and keep on working on keeping the the fires of love burning in the marriage. I think the same is true of our relationship with Jesus. Okay? Think about it. Scripture teaches that human marriage between one man and one woman was given to us as an image of the love between Christ and the church. And we know that in human marriages, things, you know, things can go cold. Things can also go cold with Jesus. 
Maybe you remember the first time Jesus became real for you. Oh. When you understood Christ's love for you, that he died for you, and, and you embraced him. Maybe, maybe you remember what it was like to be born again. Maybe that was a long time ago. Maybe you've been very faithful in your Christian life. Maybe you've done a lot of good works being a good Christian, but you've abandoned that first love that you had when you were converted. Without love, it is not possible to please God. Okay? If we do the right things in a loveless way, that's my grandson. He's really excellent. What was I saying? (laughs) Yeah, without love, it's not possible to please God. If we do the right thing in a loveless way, God is not pleased. God wants and He demands our obedience, but above all else, remember what's the first commandment? That we love God with our whole heart, soul, and strength. Okay? You're not going to satisfy any of the other commandments if you're not loving God in doing it. If you're doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, it doesn't count. And so we need to think about the love that we have for God. We need to cultivate that love. We need to fan the flames of that love. In the same way that you work on your marriages, you need to think about working on your relationship with God. What's it like? You feeling close to God? Are you feeling warm with God? All of you remember the verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. They're often read at weddings. They have nothing to do with marriage. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Okay? That's talking to preachers. You're a really good preacher, but you don't love your people. You don't count for anything. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have the faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor, and give my body to hardships, that I may boast, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Paul's talking in a time when Christians were martyred. One out of seven was martyred during that time. (coughs) Even if you're martyred for the faith and you do it in a loveless way, zero doesn't count for anything. I gain nothing. Now these things remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these are love. There are two sides to this love. One is our love for God. Okay, We only love God because He loved us first. If you love God, (coughs) it's in response. God chased you down. God found you where you were. God made his love known to you. And, and, and by his Holy Spirit, he kindled in you a love. Okay, in response, okay, one side is our love for God and the other side is our love for people, for God's people. They go together. Okay. You can't love God if you don't love your brother or your sister in Christ. If you're backbiting against people in the church, you don't love God. 
Okay? Can't love God if you don't love your brother in Christ. And you can't love your brother in Christ if you don't love Christ himself. My call to us this day is that we evaluate where we are. Where is our love for God this day? Maybe you're born again. Maybe you're, you're saved. Maybe you're on your way to heaven. What's your relationship like with Jesus? You guys been close? Maybe you don't yet have a relationship with Christ. Maybe you're on your way to being born again. You've heard about it. You know the gospel. You've heard a lot about it, but you've not made that commitment. Maybe you're just still trying to date Jesus. Okay? You don't get to heaven by dating Jesus, by admiring Jesus. You get to heaven by becoming his spouse. Okay? How long are we married for when we're married? Forever. Okay? That's a lifelong commitment. All right? Have you made that commitment? Have you married yourself to Christ? Say, you know, he's mine forever, and he's my salvation. I don't know where you are, uh, but why don't we just spend a few minutes in the quiet. The musicians will come forward, and let's think about this stuff. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know us and you love us in spite of ourselves. And you've been gracious and kind to us and you've been patient with us and you've pursued us and you've wooed us. Lord, I pray that your love for us would become clearer. And I pray that you would send us your Holy Spirit kindle a consuming passion for you. Lord, may we love you above all things. May we love you more than we love our lives. May we be committed to you today and forever. And Lord, I pray that for our own benefit, but I also pray it for your glory because you deserve the love of all of these people. Receive our worship this day, we pray. Amen.